Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports, contests, and events with first-to-market odds and lines. Find reviews and news for every league, including Major League Baseball, the NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, and even golf. BetOnline continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information, from live in-game betting, props, and futures. Head to BetOnline today or use your mobile device to join and make your first sports bet. Use our promo code BLEAV50, B-L-E-A-V-5-0, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Podcast Network. As always, appreciate you being with us and making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. This is episode 31 of season four. And as always, uh, again, you know, appreciate you listening in. We have a uh, very special guest uh, with us for the podcast today. This was a podcast that Dan Lust and I um, uh, recorded together. Dan Lust is a sports attorney based out of uh, New York City. We have been friends for, uh, for many years and have done many projects together. He's with the firm Garagos and Garagos, but a very well-known sports attorney. And uh, today is uh, Monday, August 1st. So this is the first uh, episode for uh, for August. But uh, sit back uh, and enjoy as um, Dan Lust and I talk about the uh, move of UCLA and USC to uh, the Big Ten, some of the implications of that, and uh, on the governor of California's uh, recent attempts to try to stop UCLA from moving there. We also uh, discussed Penn State's uh, attempt to unionize college sports, particularly their football team. And we also got into some other topics as well. So hope that uh, you sit back and enjoy the show. We have a special treat here. It's a home and home, Believe in Sports Law and Conduct Detrimental. Jeremy Evans, the host of Believe in Sports Law with Jeremy Evans. What's up, buddy? Hey, Dan, good to see you, my friend. Good to be with you and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. And those that don't know me, I am Dan Lust. I am one half of Conduct Detrimental alongside Dan Wallach. So, uh, you know, as, as things happen, uh, we have some issues in New York, some issues in California. And uh, I was looking into this USC-UCLA departure, some threats by Gavin Newsom. Uh, and I thought to call you because I, I figured you would have some insight on this interesting world of, you know, UC and the, the region schools. So, uh, you know, as we got to talking, it just seemed like we were like mid-podcast. So, I don't know, Jeremy, this, I guess this is kind of both of our shows right now. Do you want to give the background on the, on the Big 12, uh, the, the Pac-12, USC, UCLA stuff? Do you want me to do it? A little bit of both? You're up to, up to you. Yeah, no, let's do a little bit of both. Maybe I'll start us off and then, uh, and then jump in whenever you want. But this is such an interesting situation because UCLA is a public school and the UC regents are essentially the governing body. Uh, when it comes to the UCs. So UCLA, 
UC Berkeley, UC Merced, uh, UC Hastings, uh, UC Davis, and then the other schools that are in UC San Diego, uh, the other schools that are in that sort of uh, under that umbrella. But the question is, is whether um, Governor Newsom has the power to um, to essentially oversee the school from the point that he is the the chair of the sort of UC regents by nature of his position as governor of California. But the question is, is whether the PAC-12 is a part of the regents. And I think it's clear in my mind, contractually, it's not. Uh, the PAC-12 can do as it pleases. And, and frankly, by nature, the fact that Oregon, Arizona State, University of Arizona, um, Utah and Colorado all play uh, Stanford, they all play in the PAC-12. Those are not UC schools. So in my mind, I see the UC regents as more of an academic piece. They're not overseeing the PAC-12. Uh, matter of fact, the UC regents had nothing to do with the PAC-12 when it increased from eight teams to 10 or from 10 teams to 12. And it had nothing to do with the television negotiations or anything else. And so even a further background on this is that UCLA and USC are obviously a part of the Pac-12, one of the Power Five conferences, and they decided to lead to the Big Ten conference to make a 16-team conference out of the Big Ten, which would put Michigan and UCLA and USC and Illinois and Indiana and Michigan State and Ohio State all in the same division, along with Penn State. And uh, so television dollars-wise, just to put this in perspective, PAC-12 usually ranges around 19 to $30 million per year. By UCLA and USC leaving to the Big Ten, uh, there's potential that this could go to maybe more like 50, 60, even $70 million a year uh, per team uh, because of the, the sort of national exposure from coast to coast, you know, all the way from Maryland and Pennsylvania to California obviously a big gap in the, uh, the Southwest and the Mountain West in terms of teams. You know, I think the closest school is UCLA to, um, or USC, I guess, uh, to, um, I guess would be Nebraska. So there's a big gap there, but that's, that's kind of the, what's, what's going on. And I don't think the move is in jeopardy. Uh, in my mind, I, I think that UCLA and USC uh, would have done their, due diligence to check to see who they had to check in with, what they had to do. Uh, and frankly, um, you know, if the UC regents, you know, were expecting some sort of update or some sort of notice about it, I don't necessarily blame uh, UCLA and USC for, for not giving them some sort of courtesy notice because, you know, clearly, you know what that would have done. It would have put this out in the press before they wanted it. They wanted to be able to control the narrative that they were leaving and, and not to have it uh, sabotaged, if you will. So, yeah, I think I think he explained it well. Um, I think some of the numbers that people need to keep in mind, right? Um, I remember, and this is, I imagine this is part of it. I'm, I'm sure we can verify this. But Jeremy, do you remember that uh, Under Armour deal gone wrong with UCLA? I, I know I spent a lot of time with it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it was a deal that, uh, you know, I think uh, UCLA wished they had back. And I was, you know, in the, in the past couple of days and weeks, there's been a lot written about this move. And why UCLA felt the need to move. And the more you dig into it, yeah, certainly it's it's about the money. But if you really look into the numbers, it might have been a move out of like necessity, right? There's There's been reports that the athletic department's facing unprecedented $102 million deficit. And that this television deal, yes, it's lucrative, but it's not just like, okay, 
you're going to be making more money. It's reportedly going to be double what they would have made under the Pac-12 deal. So from a financial standpoint, right, like, I don't know if you're running the, uh, you're running UCLA or USC. Uh, we'll, we'll take, let's take UCLA for now. But if you're running UCLA, from a business standpoint, it's kind of a no-brainer. And Jeremy, you gave me kind of an education on, on the Regents' involvement here, right? From Riverside, Santa Cruz, and obviously Berkeley. Of all the various UC schools, Jeremy, are there 10? I think there are 10 in my, my research, right? I think there is 10, yeah. The only one that's in the Pac-12 is Berkeley. So I, I saw an article from the Los Angeles Times that was talking about maybe, you know, the regents would require UCLA to pay some type of exit fee to, to, like, to Cal, you know, UC California. And I'm like, that would be crazy if, you know, of all the schools that, um, you know, in the, the regents circuit, these 10 schools that like UCLA would have to pay Cal. So, I mean, honestly, this is my standpoint. And obviously, Jeremy, your, your law firm is called the California Sports Lawyer. So you're the perfect person to kind of talk about this. But it seems like the optics from Newsom's perspective, right? You have a school, California, um, you know, in the state of California, just losing two of its preeminent teams, right? Newsom doesn't control the whole Pac-12. You have schools that are in Washington, in Oregon, um, but you have those two schools leave. And all of a sudden, and I've spoke to people associated with the Pac-12, like the conference is all of a sudden in jeopardy. So, uh, you know, if the conference is in jeopardy, I think, you know, Governor Newsom is going to step up because he has wealthy donors that are located within the state of uh, California that are worried about the conference and worried about the history of Pac-12 football. So um, I'm, I'm with you. I didn't, you know, as I read, read through the you know, various the stuff that's out here, I don't, I don't see Newsom having the authority to pull back the deal. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, right, you know, UCLA is a public institution uh, and there are state monies that, you know, very frequently go to UCLA. So maybe they're going to feel the, the impact there. Right. You and I are maybe you'll see it on the, the California side. I'm not going to see it because I don't follow stuff in California that has nothing to do with sports. But, um, yeah, I think that's maybe the fear that UCLA should be worried about the relationship with Newsom. But from a defection perspective, I think that ship has sailed. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I so there's eight schools in the UC system. And it's and it's and it's interesting because out of all the schools, really, in terms of a sports perspective, it's really UCLA and Berkeley. Um, and then maybe uh, UC San Diego and some of their schools with maybe soccer and some of the other sports, but in terms of football, basketball, right. It's, it's, it's Berkeley and it's really UCLA when it comes to um, sort of the, the big brand. Right. Uh, and so I agree. I mean, maybe, you know, the governor tries to issue some sort of fee or fine and, and says, you know, this is what it, you know, you're going to, to basically, to get out of, but that's the problem though that the governor has is that the, the governor is not privy to the PAC-12 contract, that this is a private association. So him trying to say that leaving the PAC-12, which has nothing to do with the UC regents, there's no privity of contract there, right? There's nothing going on. The only thing that he can do to your point is, you know, maybe he issues a fine, but of course that's going to be litigated. Um, you know, UCLA is probably not going to stand for that, but Again, I I don't think that UCLA or UCLA or USC would have got into this situation had they um, had they not done their due diligence on it. But I think it's a great move for the school. Um, as sad as it is to leave the Pac-12, I mean, I love the, the the relationships with Stanford and with Oregon and some of the other teams, right? But at the end of the day, the Pac-12 uh, was not providing what UCLA and what USC wanted, which was more money and more exposure. So, and, well, yeah, go ahead. Say, 
was going to say, you know, let's just talk about the, the mechanics, right? So you, you alluded to it, and it's true, right? The, the Big Ten is not the only conference in sports that ranges from coast to coast, literally from Jersey to California. So maybe the SEC in this uh, battle for conference realignment and musical chairs, maybe the SEC has more firepower, but can they say that they cover three time zones, right? So all of this at the end of the day, this, this entire move, from also from the SEC side, um, you know, the weakness of the ACC, the weakness maybe of the Pac-12, a lot of this is this era of television revenue, right? That uh, the Big Ten is reportedly going to get like close to a billion dollars, maybe a little bit more from the, their next deal that's supposed to come up. Um, so they were retooling to try to get the biggest and best price for, um, you know, their network rights. So USC and UCLA certainly adds that. But then you look at it from UCLA's perspective. And again, you know, the regions can say whatever they want, um, you know, that this is, uh, you know, this is harming student athletes because they're going to have to fly like, you know, swimmers and, you know, non-football and basketball players. Those guys are making money. But athletes that are playing in non-revenue generating sports, swimming, wrestling, you know, golf, you name it that they are going to have to be traveling and playing in a Big Ten schedule. They'll have to fly to, to the East Coast, right, to, to play in some games. So that's that's troublesome, um, you know, uh, and I, you'd have a hard time if you were the AD at UCLA, USC, defending that from a student-athlete perspective. But from a monetary perspective, you know, the Pac-12 network as a television deal just doesn't, doesn't and I don't think can't make as much as Big Ten or SEC. And a lot of that, uh, and Jeremy, you know, I have an East Coast bias, Right. Like the sometimes these primetime USC games or UCLA games, they'll be at like 11 o'clock East Coast time. So, you know, it makes sense as to why uh, those games don't get as many eyeballs as a true primetime, like eight o'clock game, eight eight o'clock, you know, East Coast game, just because there's more eyeballs on the product. So that's, uh, you know, when you read the the rumors and innuendo, it seems like that's part of the reason that UCLA felt inclined to move that, that they could also right increase the eyeballs on their school. Uh, and increase the dollars coming in by moving and having to play games against Ohio State, against Rutgers, against Indiana schools that, you know, are playing maybe more favorable time zones. So, you know, I, I think from a business perspective, it makes a ton of sense, you know, uh, and I know you are as well. Um, I'm all about student athletes, student athlete, athlete mental health. I'm not sure how this travel schedule is going to impact them, but, you know, it's all about the Benjamins, apparently. Yeah. You know, Dan, I love what you said, because I, I think that some perspective on that is is so important, right? And I think you nailed it on the head. Number one, UCLA and USC are in the second biggest market outside of New York, and uh, they don't get the exposure. There's often this sort of East Coast bias people talk about, think that you mentioned, where ESPN doesn't necessarily cover what's going on in Los Angeles, and most people are paying attention to the East Coast. I actually would am not going to mind, you know, getting up early and watching games. Uh, and seeing that, and frankly, having having the ability to watch a game and then and then have the rest of the day to do work or whatever it is, right? I think it provides for that exposure. I'm going to look forward to traveling back east to go to some of these iconic stadiums, and I'm sure Penn State, Michigan, and all these other schools are going to look forward to coming to the Rose Bowl once every year or two or three years, depending on the schedule. But here's the interesting thing: is when we're talking about traveling, the logistics are really important. But I think perspective is too. So we have 16, potentially 16 teams in the Big Ten, assuming that Notre Dame and maybe another school don't jo- don't join. That means that generally your first three games are going to be against non-conference opponents. Those are usually going to be home games uh, for, for sort of the, the bigger name team, right? So I think like UCLA is playing like Alabama State this year or something like that. So 
you have that. And then the rest of your conference games, you know, you might not see Penn State once, but every two or three years, right? Same thing with Michigan. And then maybe you have certain games that you play every season, like you would have your UCLA USC, which that's a home, basically a home and home game in, in that sense, right? Because Coliseum and Rose Bowl are so close to each other. But I don't think it's going to be that much travel uh, in terms of maybe you're talking, you know, you've got 12 games in a season. So six of those are away games. So, you know, now obviously the basketball schedule might be a little bit different, right? That's where I think maybe some of the scheduling uh, becomes a becomes a bigger issue. But um, I'm sure they thought about that before they made the move, or at least w- w- I hope they did. <laughs> so. I, I do as well. I mean, I guess um... – you know, when we were, you know, we were just chatting, I, I think, I think the part that kind of, you know, kind of alluding to it, UCLA seems by reports, and I don't want to get in trouble and say it's not reportedly, but there's enough reports out there that they have this big debt of $100 million and has to be solved somehow. So you can solve it, right, by getting a lot of extra money by switching conferences. Or the other part of this, which will help uh, lead us into the next area I wanted to take us, but like, or you could cut some some activities associated with the school that aren't making you money. So I, I say the term a lot, non-revenue generating sports. And by and large, I don't want to say exclusively, but the schools that the sports that make money at, at schools are, you know, football and basketball. And there are a lot of other sports that are played at schools. And you know, by and large, those don't make the money because they're not on, you know, they don't get national television deals like the like we're talking about the football deal. And they're not uh, you know, we're not all signed up for uh, March Madness brackets for like you know, men swimming. So there's just not as many eyeballs on the product. Um, and that was kind of the fear. If you read the reports at UCLA, that they might have to cut some of those non-revenue generating sports, which, you know, we all love sports. I love sports in all shapes and sizes. So if you have to pick the two evils, right, if that's really what it is, you're picking between eliminating a full roster of uh, sports and eliminating those positions from the school um, versus just switching conferences. I mean, you know, you got to pick your poison here. But Jeremy, that, that'll lead us um, to the next part I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. Um, you know, and it, what has been a pretty busy week um, in college sports, or maybe two weeks, all of a sudden, right, we knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of where, not when. The conversation of whether athletes, uh, college athletes, should unionize uh, Penn State, uh, that's, that's the story now. Uh, people at, uh, students at Penn State, the football team are trying to unionize and, and um, you know, mobilize and be able to sit down with the school and negotiate as the same way a players union would at the major league baseball level, the NFL level, the NBA level. Um, so we can, we can talk about it. Obviously this brings up shades of when Northwestern, a similar, you know, big 10 school tried to start the unionization conversation, uh, you know, a number of years ago, the difference being obviously Northwestern was a private institution and Penn state's a public institution. Not to say that it's it's not doable, and I, I'm told the Penn State movement still remains very much alive, and they'd like to be the first recognized college sports union. Um, but certainly, uh, you have some uphill battles. But Jeremy, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. You know, this is such an interesting topic, right? And you know, in in my mind, Dan, you know, you're you're one of the you know top sports minds in the country, and I always love having these conversations with you. And you know, really, sort of one of the uh, in my mind, one of like the original sort of like of this sort of like new generation of sports, you know, sort of attorneys. And I just, you know, this is such an interesting topic. And 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 I think why it's interesting is that it's hard enough to organize a union when you're talking about one league and one set of values, uh, if you will, or at least one set of rules. 
So when Major League Baseball and Kurt Flood and, um, you know, and, and that whole sort of um, creating the players union and, and, and sort of fighting it to the, to the Supreme Court in terms of creating players' rights and all this, uh, that, that was hard enough as it was. And that was done in, an, in a time, you know, when you still had one league, essentially, you had Major League Baseball, you had American League and National League, but you had one entity. And you had the players sort of rallying around each other. The, the likelihood of that happening in college sports, at least in the current space, is very, very unlikely because you're dealing with, number one, public and private schools. So automatically you have two different institutions, which you don't, you know, you don't have public and private, um, you know, entities in, in, in professional sports. Then you've got, you know, different conferences. So you've got, you know, Power Five plus all the other conferences. And then, of course, you've got students who are in completely different situations. Uh, you know, you've got and you're not dealing with just one sport. You're dealing with all sports unless the call would just be for one sport, which, again, maybe creates another problem of the have and the have nots. Right. So uh, in my mind, I think the name, image and likeness changes that happened across the country this time a year ago were all towards um, trying to alleviate that problem of, quote unquote, paying players. Uh, and giving them an opportunity to make money off the field. But uh, I think the union is uh, in its current iteration is very unlikely. I think the Northwestern case in the past really showed that um, there, there's really not much of an appetite for this. And again, maybe all the players don't even agree. Uh, and you're talking about in basketball, you might be in college for one year. And in um, football, it's three. And by comparison's sake, just in those two sports, a basketball career is going to you know, last an average of at least five years. And in football, it's going to be three and a half. So just by comparison's sake, there's not even enough time uh, in terms of uh, what would happen in that short period of time that you're in college. But that's just sort of my initial assessment uh, as to sort of the, the college union uh, pursuit. Um, yeah, I mean, those, those that have followed my platform, um, you know, I, I've kind of warned about this for a while. The NIL era is and was fun because of the level of chaos it induces. Um, I'm saying fun just because, you know, for us, Jeremy, covering the sports law stories, NIL has been a complete animal and it's required an all hands on deck approach. But at the end of the day, there's no one that's going to come out anymore, at least as we sit here in, in July of 2022, it's going to say NIL is bad. It's bad for the schools. You know, it's just, you know, because at the end of the day, financially, the money is coming from boosters, from outside sources. The school is still making all of that revenue, still keeping 100% of that pie when it comes to the television deals and it comes to, you know, um, uh, tickets and merchandise and all this. And I have, you know, been warning people for uh, ever since the NIL began. Yes, NIL is great because schools are going to support it. Um, you know, boosters, everybody, because they're still keeping their money. The union conversation is very different because, you know, what's going on at Penn State, which, you know, I, I'm not sure if, if it's going to be Penn State's going to be the first school to unionize, but someone will try it. Someone, a football program will do it. And I mentioned football or basketball because those are your revenue generating sports. Because right now uh, you can look at any, look at the books of any program in the country. They're going to generate the vast majority of their revenue, uh, you know, a vast, vast majority from football and basketball. And then they're going to support those other sports through the, that profit. So that's, again, the same conversation that's occurring at UCLA, um, you know, that potentially, right, they might have to cut Olympic sports. 
you're never going to hear UCLA talking about cutting the football program because that's the one that makes the money. So uh, here's the problem, right? And I should say UCLA basketball, I'm sure, makes a ton of money, one of the premier programs in the country. But the problem is, right, if the players are allowed to unionize and they're allowed to bargain, just as Penn State, um, you know, I, uh, one of our friends, uh, one of the fr friends of the show, Amanda Christovich, has a, a great article up on Front Office Sports. I implore everybody to check that out. Um, but she's explaining that that was one of their initiatives. The, the Penn State players were petitioning for a piece of the revenue pie and, be and better medical care. Um, when I say petitioning, it didn't really get off the ground. Some players had signed up. Some players had backed out. Sean Clifford, the quarterback there, was pointing out that they should get a better piece of the revenue pie and um, you know medical care. So if they get a better piece of the revenue pie, great. It's fantastic if you're you know one of the football players or a family member. But if the school loses, right, 50% in theory or 40% of that football revenue, it goes into the football players' pockets. And then the Penn State basketball players, they want to do the same thing, right? And they want to take 40% of the basketball money. The other sports, right? They have to think that those guys uh, and those guys and gals and those other sports are all of a sudden on the chopping block. So, you know, uh, I point out that the NIL era was pretty universally applauded, that everyone was in support of athletes getting paid. But schools, right, they know their bottom line, right? An alumni who didn't play basketball or football, um, they're probably not going to be so happy with the union era. We're not there yet. It's it's around the corner. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. I'm just saying it's if you thought the NIL was a disruptor to the world of college sports and purity, the unionization era is going to be that, but tenfold. I agree. It changes everything. I mean, I think ultimately there's already sort of, if you're looking at a progression, I think the move to large television contracts was the first thing. I think the move to sponsorship and endorsement deals by teams was the second. I think uh, video games was probably a third even though it wasn't necessarily that schools were involved in that, but possibly in terms of making money. And then the the third or the fourth would be uh, this, this sort of uh, move to NIL. And then the fifth uh, would probably be this idea of unionization. And then somewhere in those five different things is this sort of uh, the NCAA's um, removal of its sort of power in the sense that they relax the rule on um, being able to profit from your name, image, and likeness, number one, but that too, they also gave the Power Five conferences more autonomy, uh, which I think has led to a lot of conference realignment, where essentially what's happening is there's some schools that are moving up the ranks, so to speak, uh, from, you know, sort of out of the Power, power Five into the Power Five, but then there's also most, most of the exchange has been Power Five to Power Five, meaning that you know, SEC taking schools from the Big 12, um, you know, Pac-12 taking schools from the Big 12, uh, you know, so other schools moving from ACC and, uh, you know, Big 10 and everything else. But though the, I, I agree with your assessment, not saying whether it's good or, or bad, but it'll definitely change the system forever. The, uh, the truth yeah. is, if, you, if we said it was good or bad, someone's going to yell at us. So we're better off just saying, hey, it's, it could be good or bad. Um, right. I got got one more thing for you on the NCAA front. Um, and, uh, you know, I uh, just I was going to ask you about Kyler Murray's independent study contract, but I'll, I'll save that for our conversation offline. But, um, you know, the NCAA, Jeremy, has been sitting here in the sidelines. You know, there's a report that came out, um, you know, last week. The NCAA is uh, planning to adopt a system where players can transfer freely. It's not going to be the facade of this one-time transfer rule that there might be a world where athletes can just – come and go as they please. They could be a, uh, a hired gun, so to speak, like a LeBron working on one-year contracts, right? 
And why is that? Why would an athlete want to do that? Um, because as we've seen, you know, uh, if an athlete says they want, they're thinking of transferring, their school sometimes ponies up. And I don't want to say the school, but the collective or some way they find a way to get paid. And then vice versa, there is a pot of gold waiting for them on the other side of the, the transfer portal window. So, you know, it's, it's a weird world that we're in. Again, I, I don't know if it's good or it's bad. It's just not necessarily the world of college sports I grew up with, which is fine. You know, player empowerment is at an all-time high. Um, but, you know, it, it, I don't know. The NCAA was supposed to be policing this, you know, improper inducement language. Someone offering somebody money to switch schools. Now, I've, I've seen pretty preeminent people in the NIL space say, yes, that's not allowed. But the NCAA doesn't have a prohibition on paying a player to remain at the school. So I'm like sitting here, you know, and I consider myself, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm a pretty savvy guy. You know, I know what the word inducement means. Inducement can mean, you know, you accept a certain amount of money to switch schools. But the way I would use inducement, you can induce someone to remain at a school, right? So the NCA's prohibition on improper inducements, yeah, it's a prohibition. Congrats, the NCA is doing nothing about it. Um, but I, I just tend to think that A, the NCA's rules don't cover what's going on right now. And B, even if they did, the NCA has done uh, jack. And if people think I'm a uh, you know broken record that I've kept saying this, I keep saying it in the hopes that someone associated with the NCA will listen to the cries of myself. I'm sure yours too, Jeremy, and the people that follow the space to say like, hey, if we're talking about problems here, right? And I don't know if they're problems, but unionization requires some heavy lifting. And Jeremy, to the point that you made earlier, right? We have unions in pro sports, but they represent the entire NBA. They represent the entire NFL, Major League Baseball. Um, they don't represent certain teams. I remember just in our sports history books, Jeremy, do you know the, the whole story with the NFL quarterback club with the, you know, the, the video games back in the day? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So back in the day, like the, the quarterbacks were like their own separate labor force and they like did separate deals with video games. And that was problematic, as you would imagine, amongst the ranks. Um, you know, so they've they've since devolved that. Um, but to have Penn State unionize, right, like as a football program, I'm not sure how you collectively bargain, right, when you're you only want to split the revenue with your school. How does that impact the rest of the, you know, the schools and the television deal? Does that mean Penn State should get paid differently than the other schools. So it's tough. It's just, it's a concept that's foreign to our, uh, our sports minds, not to say that it can't be done. Um, but I'm just sitting here waiting for the NCAA to step up and do something. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily know what the right answer is, but I'm not, I'm certainly not paid the big bucks at NCHQ to figure it out, but obviously, you know, there's a need here and the NCAA seems, um, you know, uh, remiss to, to actually fill that in. Right. No. And I, I agree completely. And, you know, I think by nature of collective bargaining is that the idea is that you collectively bargain and you collectively move together, right? But that's clearly not happening. And I think for some of the reasons, different conferences, different divisions, different sports, different schools, private, public, all those things kind of present per, uh, present problems, maybe prevent uh, and prevent it from happening. But you know, I, I agree with you. The NCAA front is the biggest thing. I, I sort of thought that this summer would be a great time for the NCAA to come down, uh, you know, really hard on, on the NIL sort of rules and say, here's our rules. Here's some violations of what occurred uh, if there was, uh, but it clearly hasn't happened uh, to this point. And I thought, you know, okay, it's a year point, you know, since we've done NIL, this would be a great sort of, you know, period of time to address the concerns that, you know, namely and most popular raised by Nick Saban and, 
and the dispute with him and Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. You know, so in terms of what was NIL used for, in my mind, and I just got a couple of comments on this. In my mind, I look at a true, pure NIL deal as something where you get a star quarterback at Fordham and Fordham says, um, you why, know. Why'd you, why'd you pick Fordham? That was a right. <laughs> it's where I went to law school. But yeah, that's right. That's right. No one else knows that. I want to give you, I want to give you some, uh, some, some shout out there. So. Um, all right. So let's say Dan Luss is the starting quarterback at Fordham and, um, Lost not- the pass. Okay. Go ahead. Right, right. <laughs> That's right. So, but I'm just thinking to myself, like, let's say that I work for Nike and I approach you and I say, all right, um, I want you to, uh, endorse our product and there's no existing conflicts or whatever. And, and we sign you a deal and the deal is for you to post on your social media for a period of time. And we pay you in either product and or, uh, you know, some sort of fee. That to me is a true NIL deal where you get sort of, you know, kind of um, into some gray water is you're like, well, what about if you're getting paid to do a job? Or what about if the school uses that to recruit you? Or what if the school is organizing those talent deals, those NIL deals, and then taking a percentage of it? So I think those are all questions the NCAA should really be involved in. And I, I had written a column on this recently, and I sort of had these like outstanding questions. And they were basically, um, and as, as outlandish as this might sound, I said, will a salary or talent cap be needed in college sports to prevent super leagues or super teams? Um, and I said, should NIL collectives be banned? And will the NCAA and colleges put dollars towards hiring compliance officers and not only that, but securing the necessary software to assist in regulation. And of course, how is the college football playoff and March Madness going to change through expansion? I mean, all these sort of questions that are unanswered. And I think NCAA is at the center of it. Uh, and they should be at the center of it. Uh, they should be in, in the middle of, of regulating this because Congress is definitely not going to do it. Yeah, let's see. I mean, uh, I'm hearing whispers in the background that Maybe the collective era is going to be short-lived. I'm hearing just a lot of rumblings behind the scenes. So, um, you know, if I hear something concrete, maybe I'll, I'll drop a lust bomb, which I I'm, I'm, uh, tend to do, right? So, Woj Wo- has his bombs. Jeremy, what do you have, an Evans bomb, or you want to go by- with a Jeremy bomb? <laughs> Evans bomb? I don't know if I'm dropping – I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm dropping too much that way, but uh, uh, usually – but you you definitely have uh, you have you have a great way about doing that. But yeah, I don't know what I would call it though. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm going to trademark lust bomb. I think uh, yeah. I get away with that. Um, well, Jeremy, it was a pleasure having you on um, again. Jeremy, uh, as your listeners know, your show obviously is Believe in Sports with Jeremy Evans. Our show, Conic Detrimental. Um, yeah, so uh, Jeremy, always a pleasure, and uh, I'm sure uh, we'll speak too soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, my friend. Thank you. Okay, speak too soon. All right. All right. Thank you, folks, for listening in. Uh, this is Jeremy. I'm the host of the Believe in Sports Law podcast via the Believe Network. That was with Dan Lust, sports attorney based out of New York. Again, thank you for listening in, making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. And uh, this show has been brought to you by Bet Online. Look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.